it's it was a green tea night tonight. When I um before I give a Dharma talk, I I assess my energy level, and uh, depending on what it is, I have chamomile tea, no tea, green tea, or on very rare occasions, black tea. So it was a green tea night tonight. Um, I feel a little rowdy, so I might have overdone it. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm sure you've had that experience on retreat, too. So we finished our three talks on dukkha. Um, but since I love the subject so much, <laughs> this isn't um, a, a exactly one of the three kinds of dukkha talk, but it, it contains a fair amount of dukkha. So we'll continue our exploration together. I love talking about dukkha. It just, um, it's so grounding. So tonight's talk is um, about deeply conditioned patterns of heart and mind, um, what my teacher calls karmic knots. And so as we settle more deeply into retreat, you may have noticed that sometimes we become aware of patterns of thinking and um, of emotion that we weren't so aware of before, or perhaps we were aware of these patterns, but the pervasiveness and the intensity of them was not quite so apparent to us. And so sometimes on retreat, we'll see ourselves get um, stuck over and over again in these emotional turmoils with a repeat theme, conditioned by deeply held beliefs, We could call these deeply ingrained patterns karmic knots. That's uh, my teacher Michelle, her um, phrase, are karmic patterns. Now, obviously, they're not uh, a thing, a real thing like a knot, but rather they're very um, well-worn pathways in the heart and the mind. But the phrase karmic knot, I like it because it gives us a sense of a sense that we're dealing with these, um, a tangle, (laughs) a tangle of thoughts and emotions, many threads, many strands of beliefs, emotions, and thoughts that arise together and um, have a certain inflexible or tightly bound nature to them. They've been repeated so many times that there's this um, neural groove in the mind that's well established and, and we go there eas- easily kind of like water flows down a deep um, uh, canyon gorge it knows the way to go there's that one route so some examples might be um, um, self-doubt and confusion that might be a place that we go easily or addictive patterns or um, self-judgment self-hatred, uncontrollable anger, insecurity, anxiety. When I told the story in the eating meditation talk about the, what happened to me in the line when I had the thought, um, there won't be enough for me, that was a karmic pattern for me, a karmic knot of scarcity, of fear that there wouldn't be enough. Sometimes it's a conditioned... Um, cultural belief, a confirmed cultural belief, a belief that's associated with our social class or our family conditioning, birth mana, as Bonnie talked about. And Bonnie gave the example of um, 
cultural conditioning of, of being a victim. And so the, I'm sure there were lots of threads in that of, emo, of different emotions and thoughts and um, actions that would come out of that. Sometimes they reflect a survival strategy that we learned when we were young to cope with our world, especially if our world was chaotic. Children come up with all kinds of um, explanations and ways of handling um, chaos or abuse. And so these beliefs and strategies can become ossified, can become... um, well-established in the mind and then continue on long after uh, we're children, when we're adults. So one way we know that we're dealing with a karmic knot or one of these patterns is the thought, oh no, not this again. (laughs) Um, We can get really frustrated with these places and uh, often there's a lot of shame and self-judgment when these patterns come up. And they're very sticky. There's lots of uh, um, identification. I use the word sticky. And they hypnotize us. And sometimes they overwhelm us. That's another reason we don't like them too much is because we so easily fall under the spell of believing the thoughts and believing the emotions and believing the whole world view that... Um, appears when one of these uh, patterns is strong. We can be afraid of them. And we also um, tend to get uh, quite frustrated with the speed of change of these patterns. The mind has a built-in tendency to move very slowly with changing um, foundational patterns, the patterns that we learn very young. Our minds are basically conservative. They like to err on the side of caution. And these um, deeply conditioned patterns are often um, very protective patterns that they, that they um, were developed to protect us in some way. And so they change very slowly. And we need tons of patience and kindness and mindfulness when we're working with these patterns for that reason. So talking about emotional issues may appear to some practitioners to be dealing with uh, psychotherapy issues. And um, there is a place to explore these kinds of patterns in a psychotherapeutic setting. But these places are also, or these patterns are also a spiritual challenge we most strongly experience a sense of self when one of these uh, patterns, and most people have a couple anyway, two or three or more, um, we most strongly experience a sense of self when these arise. I think of it as a manifestation of sankara dukkha. See, I got some dukkha in there. (laughs) A manifestation of sankara dukkha because... um, they maintain a very cohesive um, view of ourselves. But it takes a lot of work. We have to do it over and over again. They create a sense of who we are. And the very uh, tightness and inflexibility of these patterns points to the um, 
powerful amount of attachment and identification that happens. And any way we can loosen our attachment and identification to this kind of patterning will lead to more space and freedom in the heart and the mind, more flexibility with our sense of self, less attachment. So we're going to explore them from a meditation standpoint and perspective. And overall, the most important thing from a meditation standpoint is what is our relationship to these patterns when they arise? The identification, the attachment, or the non-identification, the letting go of attachment, or the, the, the attachment becoming more and more transparent, less opaque. But as you all know, to have a relationship with anyone or anything, we have to know it well. So part of the exploration with these patterns is to get to know them well. So we're going to turn the quality of investigation to these patterns, that quality that Aaron talked about last night. In my own practice, I've seen that untangling these knots goes through uh, six phases. Actually, I've only seen five of them, but I'll tell you about six. <laughs> this is Rebecca's six phases for dealing with karmic knots. Um, the process isn't linear exactly. I'll describe a kind of linear progression as we work with these um, patterns, but uh, the, the quote-unquote progress <laughs> isn't exactly linear. We'll um, go back and forth through the phases. Sometimes we'll feel like we're kind of getting a grip on the whole thing and then, uh, you know, we'll feel like we fall back. Bad night's sleep or a stressful time will do us in and we'll fall back into believing these patterns. There's this game with little kids called Shoots and Ladders. I used to be a therapist with little children and I'd play this game with them. So anyway, you go along and if you hit a certain spot, then you get to skip up. But if you hit a certain spot, then you, you have to fall down the chute and go back down to the beginning. So sometimes working with these places is a little bit like that. But there's a general progression as mindfulness strengthens and uh, wisdom develops. It's a process of dehypnotizing ourselves, deconditioning these sticky places with awareness and compassion. And in the process, we don't get rid of these thoughts and emotions. If we get rid of anything, what we get rid of is the identification and the attachment to them and then the rest takes care of itself. And since these places of deep conditioning are often where we feel a lot of self-judgment or shame, I'm hoping that um, presenting these phrases will help lessen that, will help um, normalize the process and uh, free up our energy to engage with these patterns with interest. When we're judging ourselves and thinking that we shouldn't still be struggling with this, which is a thought that points to the fact that it's one of these karmic patterns, we can't really see what's going on. So we try to um, turn judgment into interest. 
And to really know that this is part of the path of purification when we touch these, they're often very tender places inside. It's part of the opening process. In fact, sometimes what happens is you'll be going through a nice calm period. Everything's cruising along. Um, You're feeling confidence in your practice uh, and calm, and then suddenly you get hit with um, one of these patterns. And there's often the thought, well, I did something wrong. Why did that happen? What did I do wrong? But actually, it's, it's um, a not uncommon process that our practice unfolds that way, that the quiet and the stillness opens up the, you could say it opens up the body, the heart, the mind, the energy. Um, and uh, what was hidden is now seen. So it's the very stillness and the quiet and the calm that can actually um, lift, you could say, these patterns. And then what happens is we work with, right, we work with them with the instructions and, um, and then at some point we develop some equanimity, more equanimity around work being with them. And then we often find we'll drop into um, even more calm from that process of working with the stuff that came up. So it's, it's a very natural part of the process. A common pattern I'll use as an example is one, um, you could call it not being good enough or perfectionism. Many of you have mentioned this. And there's so many strands to this one. There's a strand of striving and anxiety, maybe shame, feeling that one always has to be busy and productive so that one's worthy of existence. (laughs) So unworthiness, self-judgment, Sometimes for me it can go into feeling like I don't belong somewhere, that I'm not good enough to belong in this place. Sometimes that would come up for me here years after I was teaching. Like I would be, there was one point when I had the most days on the schedule just because of the different things that I was teaching. I still had that thought sometimes. (laughs) It would be like, wow, well that's kind of (laughs) interesting. One way you can tell it's a karmic knot is you have a thought that's just like not congruous congruent with reality, with current reality, like the thought when I was standing in the lunch line, fourth in line, and there's not going to be enough food for me. It's like, hmm, something's not quite adding up here. (laughs) That's how you can sometimes tell that you're having, um, that you're in under the spell of one of these patterns. So this not good enough pattern um, also often includes a very strong inner critic, or an inner bully, we could call it, right? Many years ago, before I started meditating, when I was in college, I saw a therapist because I was dealing with a lot of anxiety, and um, we came up with this image for my inner critic, and it was this image of a tribunal of um, judges, like seven judges, all old white men with these wigs and the gavels is what is that what they're called and so they were all just judging me you know pounding their little (laughs) well the idea was that it was funny I mean when I had that image it really helped me to um be less identified with that pattern because I would just smile and go so sometimes you can use some humor too that helps That inner critic or inner bully is um, really sharp. I don't know if you've noticed this. 
But if you try to engage um, the inner critic, uh, they, it, he, she, it always wins. One yogi said to me, you can never win. And it's true with the inner critic. Very slick fella with lots of um, good reasoning, right? Knows just where to get you. <laughs> and sometimes it comes up strong at the end of a retreat where we, we're not at the end yet, but towards the end of a retreat where we might be evaluating our practice and the inner critic's like, wow, you really didn't get it, did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of ignoring the fact that you actually managed to stay here for 10 weeks or four weeks so far, depending on which, which is in itself an amazing um, accomplishment. The amount of determination it takes to stay here and do this that long. Wow. So the, the um, inner critic kind of ignores some information and uh, <laughs> goes for uh, ones that fits its story. We'll be talking about that later. I think that this is a um, pervasive cultural pattern to the, the not good enough. I think it has its bi- I think it's actually a really, really deeply ingrained um, evolutionary, evolutionarily developed um, pattern. And I think it's I've really explored this a lot in my own mind, and I think it comes from um, really trying to make sure we don't get kicked out of the tribe. Like, like we're tribal animals, and in our deep biological conditioning, um, if you got kicked out of the tribe, you died. Uh, you know that for most of history, that's how it been. It was you couldn't survive by yourself, right? So, like, um, I see sometimes that all of these um, patterns is just like our, this particular one is just like how can I avoid get, getting kicked out of the tribe. And as Joseph said the other night, we didn't evolve for happiness, we evolved for survival, right? And I think it's exacerbated by modern society, by modern um, industrial society rooted in individualism, right? Rooted in consumerism. Consumerism feeds on it, feeds it. I think it might be the core karmic knot, but I'm not sure. This one about not good enough or and all the strands. So as I said, I've worked with this a lot in my practice and feel like uh, through this meditation practice um, come too much, um, a lot of freedom and spaciousness around this pattern. So I'll tell you about the six phases. So the first phase I call pre-awareness. And this karmic pattern operates in our lives, but we're not really that conscious of it. Or if we're conscious of it, we're not interested in it. We just want to avoid it, don't want to know about it, want it to go away. In the meantime, the underlying beliefs um, influence how we see the world. And so we unconsciously believe the um, assumptions about the world and ourself that come with this pattern. And perception really works to strengthen these patterns. Our minds are basically lazy. They want to do their work as efficiently as possible, with as little work as possible. 
And so what perception does, that's one of the aggregates, right? Perception um, scans and sees uh, characteristics of some situation or something. And, um, and then when it sees f- information that fits what we believe, it goes, yeah, okay, mm-hmm, that, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so perception um, functions to strengthen the, this karmic pattern by um, only seeing information that confirms it and ignoring and not seeing information that doesn't confirm it. See, our minds don't like cognitive dissonance. They like, because um, that's too much work. That makes us uncomfortable. So they like um, um, information that agrees with our beliefs. That's the easiest, right? There's a story I found from um, Lao Tzu, from the uh, Tao master. He says, Once upon a time, a man whose axe was missing suspected his neighbor's son. The boy walked like a thief, looked like a thief, and spoke like a thief. But the man found his axe while digging in the valley. And the next time he saw his neighbor's son, the boy walked, looked, and spoke like any other child. (laughs) That's how our minds work. So what we actually perceive is deeply influenced by our beliefs and fears and expectations about what we'll see. So these karmic patterns function as a filter for what we perceive and how we make sense of it, out of it. So let's say you're in a sitting and 30 minutes into the sitting and the pain's gotten really strong and you move. So the inner critic just sees that you're a failure. You didn't make it through the 45 minutes, right? Because that's, that's the, um, the filter and, and not actually seeing that you sat for 30 minutes still, for example. Or you fall asleep in the middle of a sitting and, and you're just a horrible yogi, right? But yet, like I said, you're still here. That's incredible. So because we're unaware of the, of the karmic pattern, are not really interested in it, we don't really see how it flu- influences and our perception and shapes the, the world that we see. We're, very, we're completely identified with it. When I was younger, this sense of not being good enough and needing to be perfect was the world that I lived in but I really couldn't see it. I was very much of a perfectionist. And it manifested as a lot of anxiety. As a teen, I I had a bedtime ritual. I would, uh, when I would go to bed every night, I would think about my whole day and see if there was something I hadn't worried enough about yet. And I I would worry about it. And then I could go to sleep. And I just thought that being hard on myself was normal. I just thought that's the way you were. And I wasn't at all aware of the strong emotions that are part of this pattern, the strong emotions of self-judgment and fear. And when I started to meditate, it manifested as very strong striving in my practice. I wanted to be super yogi. 
I want it to be perfect. So we often bring these karmic patterns into how we meditate. We may become, if, if this pattern is one of ours, we may become convinced that there's just a way that our practice should look. Watch out for that word, should. The way our practice should look, and we just haven't managed to find it yet because we're not good enough. And that if we try harder, we will find it. We will get our practice to look like it should look, like what we think the people up here are saying. <laughs> yeah, so that's how it might manifest in practice. And sometimes, or, or comparing, it might manifest comparing ourselves to other yogis. So somebody in the hall asks a question, sounds like they got just spectacular mindfulness or way in there, right? And you just go, oh. <laughs> what is wrong with me? Like, why am I not, like, getting that, right? (laughs) Or hall competitions, right? Like the competition to who stays the latest in the hall. (laughs) Or who comes in first. (laughs) Who takes the longest to eat lunch? (laughs) You know, there's all these these ways that we, like... um, (laughs) That this pattern manifests, right? So then phase two, I call it aware after. So we begin to notice the patterning, but we, we don't really notice it while it's happening. We notice it afterwards. So we see afterwards that we were caught in something, uh, caught in a pattern with these thoughts and emotions, that we were identified with them. And this is actually how mindfulness works that first of all you notice afterwards and then you start to be able to notice more during which will be the next phase and then you start to be able to notice the arising and the just developing which is the phase after that so we're really talking a lot about how mindfulness works so when mind uh, so one way ex- and 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 it depends too on the strength of the pattern like where we might fall and 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 how the mindfulness is developing but in this phase it's afterwards it's like we come out of a trance and we go oh wow okay that's what was happening and it's a great step because we're starting to be aware of the pattern and at least have some interest in it whereas in the first Phase, we just want it to go away, no interest, just get rid of it. Or just don't even, you know, delusion, just don't even see it. Sometimes we notice afterwards because we've done something that is not congruent with our beliefs or our values. Not, no, I didn't mean beliefs, I meant values. That's not congruent with our values because these karmic patterns can have such, um, they can be so tenacious and so strong that we can wind up doing things out of them, doing actions out of them that we really wouldn't want to do. So perhaps, for example, if we blow up in anger and say things that we wish we hadn't said, it might be fueled by this kind of deep conditioning We're kind of hijacked, and then afterwards we see that. Or let's say you wind up doing something here on retreat that you've been told you shouldn't do, that that isn't part of the culture here. 
sometimes there's one of these karmic patterns fueling it. You can check out what, you know, if you wind up doing something that you shouldn't really be doing, um, check out what's going on in your heart, in your mind. So the Buddha recommended uh, reflection after we do something as a way to increase mindfulness and understanding. So it's a helpful phase. Now phase three is the most intense, and that's where we start to become mindful during the pattern, uh, while the pattern is manifesting. So we start to become aware in present time awareness of the thoughts and the beliefs, and we start to be able to feel the emotions. And yet we're still very identified with them, so we still believe them. We're still attached to them. It's still very sticky. So we have enough mindfulness at this point to see what is happening, but um, it's not strong enough or the pattern so strong that that the deeply conditioned attachment to it um, doesn't get cut through. The neural pathways are still very strong and we, um, we still get hypnotized by them. So at a certain point with this pattern of not being good enough, I started to become aware of it while it was happening. And what happens in this phase is it's actually more painful. <laughs> it's more painful than the prior phases. So um, it's, an, it's an intense period. So I started to feel the insecurity and the harshness of, of the perfectionism and the self-judgment and the deep fear. And I still really believed I wasn't good enough. So it was still strong. On one retreat, I remember finding myself judging every single breath. Was it good enough? Was I with it well enough? It was just this quick at the end of each breath, this quick judgment, assessment of whether I had done it well enough. That deep perfectionism. There's a great quote by Natalie Goldberg from the Shambhala Sun in in, um, September of 2007. She says, The terrible truth which is rarely mentioned is that meditation doesn't lead us directly to some vaporous, glazed-eyed peace. It drops us right into the personal meat of human suffering. See, I got it in there again. (laughs) With with practice, we settle right down into the barbed wire nest, and this changes us. So we start, um, we stop using all of our energy to resist this conditioning, these patterns, and we start to free up energy to be interested in them. And we start, um, you could say we start sticking with our, with our truth, with our experience, developing um, what one teacher calls emotional honesty about what's really happening. And we might... Um, think at this stage that we're worse off than we were before we started. (laughs) Some people will say, oh, I'm just, I'm more of a mess than I was before. 
Why am I doing this? May even curse the person who introduced us to meditation. (laughs) (laughs) Why would I want to meditate to be aware of this kind of suffering but not yet be able to feel any transformation? We might ask this question. But really confronting the reality of our situation is the only way to change it, the only way to freedom. So we endure. And even more than endure, as this phase matures, we become increasingly interested in meeting the truth, the truth of our experience as it is. So we investigate, and we investigate the how and the what. I think um, Aaron mentioned this last night. We're not quite so interested in the why. (laughs) So the why is where we'll often go first, like why is this happening, right? But usually when we're asking, like, why is this happening, usually what's happening is we're like, how can I get rid of it? That's the subtext usually under why. It's like, I want to understand this so I can get rid of it. And that kind of exploration might be useful in psychotherapy, but it's not the kind of exploration that we do here. The exploration that we do here is the how and the what. So what's happening? Directly connecting with that heart, mind, body. How is it changing? How is it unfolding? So we might notice patterns of thoughts, we might notice beliefs, but the emphasis is towards how and what, not why. So it's not an analytical investigation. Oh, we love analytical investigation. It's where we usually go first. We feel so comfortable there thinking about it, right? But often that's a way of avoiding feeling it, being with it. It's actually a step removed, right? We get conceptual. So this investigation is through experiencing it with awareness. And we're developing the intention to be intimate with it. Now sometimes, of course, we will hate it and we'll want it to go away because usually these patterns are, are tender places. They're very painful. So what's it like to hate it? Try that. Does it work? You know, see for yourself. Hating it, wanting it to go away, does it work? It's good to try it out. Often what happens when we hate it is the knot gets tighter, right? It's like we're trying to pull those strands apart, but we're actually tightening them. It's very tender, as I said, to be getting in touch with these places, but it's also very um, healing and very beautiful process. I, I call it bringing the pieces home. <laughs> it's, um, it leads to more of a sense of unity and wholeness, all thereness. It actually increases our ability to be able to be here and be present because we we're, we're, um, don't need to be so defended. There's less denial. We're in touch with our humanity.
So we want to undertake this exploration with wisdom and balance. And when we have interest and energy, we may move closer and investigate more closely, more deeply. And when the experience is overwhelming, we're we're lost and uh, drowning in the emotions, and we can't get perspective, then it's wise to back off. We said this a number of times, but we often can't remind you enough. Or sometimes we just have to say a firm no when the pattern comes up, if it's really overwhelming us, like that inner critic. There's a place sometimes when it's just relentless, right? Sometimes it can just be relentless, just like no. (laughs) Sometimes I say, thanks for sharing. (laughs) You know, like, thanks for sharing, but no, (laughs) we're not going to go there. So there's a place for that too, for... And sometimes it's good we touch in and then we back off. We touch in, we back off. That actually teaches us non-identification. If we can touch in and back off, we're already learning about not taking it too personally. Sometimes we'll experience this patterning in the heart area or in the body. And it's often good if it's um, just to touch the edges. We want to go deep sea diving sometimes. We want to go like right to the heart of it. Like if I go all the way in there, what's, what's the rest of that sentence? <laughs> I'll get rid of it. All right? It doesn't work that way. I get rid of it through love and compassion and mindfulness, not through aversion. All right? So if we find that we're trying to do that, kind of like I'm going to get in the middle of this so I can get rid of it, eh, probably better to back off. Or sometimes, sometimes we're feeling number. We kind of we we sense there's something there or something more there, but we're numb. Or the heart it feels kind of hard, and we want to figure out what's going on. I sometimes use the example. It's like um, we want to figure out what's going on so we can get rid of it, right? So the example I use sometimes is, uh, let's say you're in the prairie, and there's those little gophers, prairie dogs. They live in the holes, right? So you're standing outside a little hole and you're like, come out, little prairie dog, come out. And you're standing there with a baseball bat, right? (laughs) And you're just ready to womp it. (laughs) That's how we are with ourselves sometimes. It's like there's something going on. You you know, you feel there's something going on. It's like, oh, I want to, I really want to be there for you. Right? But you don't. You want to womp it. <laughs> so what does a prairie dog do? He didn't come out, right? Yeah. So, so if that's um, how we're approaching some of these um, places, it's best to just kind of back off and wait till you can approach it with more balance. You've got to have respect. You've got to have respect for your heart. Have respect for your mind. Treat them with lots of respect. So we do start to develop some compassion at this at this stage. That's another um, really beautiful gift of this um, being willing to connect and to explore and to experience uh, the truth of our 
of these um, patterns, the heart starts to soften. We start to consider the possibility of caring about this rather than hating it or trying to get rid of it. And we start to understand that it, in some way it's not so personal, that it's just part of the human condition. And that helps too to um, increase the compassion. It helps us to hold it more lightly. We may start to understand that these patterns really have a protective function. Even the inner critic is trying to protect us. Doesn't seem like it, but the inner critic, it's like, let's beat you up first before anybody else can. That, that'll, that'll keep you safe. Misguided, but, well, I know my own experience. When I look deeply, I see that the inner critic is really, it's a form of love. It's just a little misguided, but it's just trying to help out. So we begin to cultivate the softening of the heart and a certain steadfastness in our commitment to truth and to treating ourselves with wisdom and compassion. As um, the poem, a little uh, writing or poem by Rilke, he said, the German poet, I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere because where I am folded, there I am not true. And I want my grasp of things to be true. So I want to unfold. We want to unfold so that we can be true. So one challenge at this um, point in our practice is to become interested in these patterns of suffering without further entrenching them. So one of the dangers is that we actually strengthen our attachment to our stories, that we become a little too fascinated with them. And this can especially happen if we get lost a lot in analyzing them. So we come to the conclusion, oh, I'm this kind of person or I have so much anger, I have so much shame. And so um, if, um, yeah, what can happen is we can start to uh, use the stories um, and the patterning as a way to consolidate our sense of self. I think Joseph talked a little bit about this the other night, about the difference, the kind of insight we're trying to develop. So if we start to think about them too much, analyze analyze them too much, and get lost in the stories of of the patterning, um, we dissipate our energy for practice. We dissipate our clarity. We leak energy. So if we notice that happening, it's just come back to, oh, what's happening now? Right? Keeping it simple. We may have insights arise related to the patterning. That's actually very normal that will happen. We'll we'll have this thought like, oh, okay, that's why 
that happens or it'll have a kind of oh quality to it. You can feel it. It actually for me doesn't seem to come from the mind. It seems to come from the belly. And it, and it, and these kind of clear insights tend to have a oh quality to them, to me. So it's different than thinking, 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 oh maybe, uh-uh, right? It's it's more like, oh, okay. What happens is we'll have this kind of insight, you know, maybe a psychological insight, that's part of the practice. And um, then we'll want to chew on it, right? So we'll have it and then we want to just go into it. But you know, all that's really ex- extra. You usually don't gain anything else ex- helpful by doing all that. It's like that first all. That's really the information usually. And you might have a series of O's. <laughs> it might be like, oh, oh, that too, uh, uh-huh, you know. But it's different than, right, that kind of like, uh-huh. So that's the risk of um, engaging with these karmic patterns. But there's a risk of not engaging with them too, of jumping too quickly to disidentify, jumping too quickly to not me, not mine. And, and that risk is of having a disconnected spirituality that um, may lack in compassion. So if we move too quickly to disidentification with what comes up without... Um, developing the compassion that's engendered by an honest engagement with it. We may control the pattern, but we may not really make genuine peace with it. Control's not peace. So there's the danger of what we call spiritual bypassing, where we have an idea of how practice should look, an ideal of how practice should look, and then something comes up in our experience which doesn't fit the ideal. We're sitting here full of rage, like, no, that's not okay. I'm supposed to be spiritual. (laughs) Spiritual people don't get angry, right? And so then we kind of find a way to go bypass, go around it. Um, And that... um, that has the danger of these kinds of patterns becoming what we call our shadow, our unseen, um, our unseen conditioning, right? And to keep that in place, we usually need a fair amount of self-deception or delusion or deception to others. And if we're in a position of power, that can cause a tremendous amount of harm And most of us, many of us have some position of power in our lives, being a parent, being a teacher, being a leader in some way. So spiritual bypassing, it's a danger for us meditators. We have to be careful. Especially notice when you, when you hear should or shouldn't in your mind. Oh, this shouldn't be happening. This should be happening. That's often a little clue that we might be headed that way. And if we get tired of dealing with the truth, which is often much messier than we had anticipated or hoped for, 
If we get tired of dealing with it for ourselves, we can think of it as a gift that we give to our loved ones. So that we don't have to be involved in self-deception or deception of others. I'm not talking huge deceptions. I'm just talking of the ways that we deny. Um, I also just want to say, some of you um, may not be... I should have said this at the beginning, but I want to say it now. Some of you may not be experiencing a lot of... um, emotion or patterning coming up at the moment. So just be careful with hearing my talk and then thinking, oh, I should be experiencing some of what Rebecca's talking about. You know, there's times when practice you're just cruising along and it's not, you know, it's calm. It's easy. It's, there's not much emotion. Or if an emotion comes up, it's quick. It passes through very quickly. So so be careful of, of taking this talk then to... to um, Try to set yourself up. Oh, it's getting late. Oh, my. (laughs) We're only on phase four. Okay, phase four. Starting to not identify. Um, So here, the the karmic knot arises, or the karmic patterning, and we start to um, not take it so seriously. And we start to actually understand that it's a created reality and that there are alternative realities to the one that we've created. So we see the thoughts and we realize they're just thoughts. We don't have to believe them. We feel the emotions and we realize that they're just emotions. We can let them arise and live their life out and pass on. And a crack in our world view will often come in this um, phase that reveals that we don't have to be stuck in the old conditioning. I remember having this amazing realization that I didn't need to be perfect. That it was just like so much work. That it wasn't worth it. <laughs> so stressful. So impossible. One yogi mentioned the other day, she had the insight, this moment doesn't need to be fixed. That's a crack, right, in the worldview. If the worldview is, you know, I have to get it perfect, you know, there's a sense that it all has to be fixed and this, this world doesn't need to be fixed. So we've stopped, at least for a moment, from identifying with this thought or emotion and there's great power in that, that realization. We can feel it. A sense of freedom opens up. And it, may, it almost feels like a moment of grace, but it's really um, a result of all the moments of mindfulness of that, that difficult stage three, you could say. I remember uh, one, of, one, parts, one of the threads for me of this knot was the thought that um, people didn't like me. I used to think people didn't like me. It was just like my go-to thought, right? And so I was at work one day talking to somebody at work, and she got some look on her face, and I saw the thought, she doesn't like me. And then the thought came up, maybe she's tired today. It was like novel. It was like, oh. <laughs> so, so you start to see that your conditioned explanation for the world is just, um, is just perception, you know, seeing what it expects to see.
You know, that moment was so powerful that I remember years, years later, many years later. So we start to find that we can even um, play with these patterns a little bit and have some fun. I went through a period uh, where I used the mantra, mantra, I am completely ordinary. (laughs) It was to like, you know, like to counteract the um, perfectionism and I loved it. I felt so much freedom in that. I'm completely ordinary. And uh, you would kind of lighten it all up or or I would, um, if I saw this, the inner critic, I'd remember that tribunal of judges and that would lighten things up. And retreats are great because they give us a chance to relax and see these patterns clearly. One um, retreat where this perfectionist pattern really opened up for me was one where my teacher told me not to meditate formally more than once a day. Because of what was happening in my practice, it just wasn't helpful, it wasn't balanced. Um, I could only come in this hall and sit once a day. So I'd been super yogi, right? Really good yogi. Um, And I was very upset with this instruction. (laughs) I was very upset. (laughs) I was allowed, she told me I could do some useless gazing if I wanted to, which meant that I could sit at a window with a cup of tea and look out. That that was okay. Um, <laughs> and it really brought this conditioning, like, wow, right in my face. Like, I felt like, um, you know, uh, I would look at the yogis sitting and walking and just yearn to be like one of them, right? Um, and I And I found this really deep conditioning that if I didn't kind of produce something, that I wasn't worthy of existence. You know, I wasn't producing anything. I wasn't coming up with anything to show for myself, right? And it turned out to be a fabulous retreat. There was so much freedom. It took about 10 days of really going through the fire of just all of this stuff, just going through. And then afterwards, it was, wow, I experienced freedom like I'd never experienced it before. It was just beautiful. And it was a very deep retreat. I saw that you don't have to confine your practice to sitting and walking, and you don't have to produce anything. Just being. So let's move on to phase five. Phase five, um, I call it tasting freedom. So the thoughts and emotions may still arise in our experience, but there's not um, enough attachment for them to really gather steam. So we start to see the arising of the pattern. And sometimes we'll see the rising of the pattern. It's very interesting. You'll feel like the attachment. It's like the mind's like, let's go there, you know, it's like, I, you know, because it's like, you know it, right, it's like, 
And then it's just like, nope, we're not going to go there. (laughs) And it's not out of aversion at this point, though. That's what is different. It's out of compassion and wisdom. It's not like, oh, I hate that. It's just like, no, we kind of know that. It comes out of partly from the deep intimacy with the pattern that we really know well. It's like kind of like, I know you. I think, no, we're not going to do that kind of suffering today. And so the threads, it's like the knot starts to loosen, the threads start to, the strands start to come apart. There's a um, quote from Leonard Cohen that I love from the Shambhala Sun magazine. He says, you know the singer Leonard Cohen, he says, he was a Zen monk for many years. You run through your top ten erotic fantasies, ambition fantasies, revenge fantasies, global ratification fantasies. You run through them all until you bore yourself to death, basically. And the faculty that produces opinions and snap judgments and unrealistic scenarios for your own prominence, after you run through them a number of years, they cease to have charge, the attachment. Right? They bore themselves into non-existence. <laughs> That's my favorite line. They bore themselves into non-existence. So that's what we're doing. We're boring these patterns into non-existence. But you did notice he said after years. So you have to be realistic. It's very important. Um, My teacher says 10 years to a lifetime that we work with some of these karmic patternings. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to wait 10 years to experience some freedom, right? Like I said, we move up and down. Um, But sometimes it takes a long time. The point of telling you that is not to discourage you, especially I know the older folks are like, what do you mean 10 years? I don't have 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) The point of telling you that is to... um, is to love the journey. And that's what you have to do in the end. You have to surrender. It's not to, you, you give up the like, there's going to be some time in the future where I get rid of this or whatever, and you just love the journey. We relax, we relax into the unfolding. And we drop the idea of some goal that we're going to get to. And the last phase, phase six, the liberated heart and mind. In the Buddhist teachings, we can reach a level of spiritual maturity where our hearts and minds are so purified of the force of attachment that these kinds of patterns no longer have a place to land. So it's said that uh, fully enlightened beings called arhats are free of mental suffering. There's no attachment present in the heart and mind, no clinging, no attachment. So there's not the karmic force to perpetuate these kinds of patterns. I think it's possible they may arise in some form as residual karmic energy. (laughs) And it's said that we have to, even arhats have to play out some of their karma still. Um, But they don't cause suffering. Got the shortened version of the last two. Sorry, guys. 
Well, there's something I wanted to read, but I don't have time anyway, so that worked out well. <laughs> I don't wind up keeping you late. <laughs> but just in summary, um, this is a process then we see of moving from a contracted sense of self and identification around these deep, can deeply conditioned patterns to one of increasing ease, increasing spaciousness, less identification, freedom, more and more freedom. And we haven't gotten rid of anything except the attachment or the identification. I love this time of year where the um, leaves have dropped off the trees and when you walk in the woods you can see the contours of the land, you can see so far in the land and the light, so much light comes through the trees. I think of it as a little bit like that as we've um, dropped some of the clutter, the obstructions in the heart and the mind then the light can shine through and we can see the contours of the land, the contours of our life, the contours of life itself. Let's sit for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.